This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the Loopcast. Today, I have Mike Rothschild, the author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, cult and conspiracy theory of everything. This book is great. So as I've kind of stated in other shows, we're, we're hesitant to do shows on Q. The argument that I brought to Chelsea was basically, it's not that fascinating to me. It, you know, they, it didn't seem like it was on the cutting edge of things. It was just like a repetition, another cult. But Mike's book came suggested to me through enough trusted circles and trusted people that I gave it a shot. And I was like really pleasantly surprised. The book is really good. It ends up for me being kind of this first cut of history of the QAnon movement that is, it's it's kind of written for normies, right? It's it's very clearly written. It's very well-written, but it's it's written for kind of the non-researcher audience, which I think is is a good thing, right? Because you're taking this complex, weird, very online thing and you're introducing it to normies and kind of showing you know here's a history here's where it comes from and here's where it's going I thought the three like strongest points of the book and like you know in addition to sort of telling us the history of Q it also he might kind of lays out the context of Q right so I think it's in a popular understanding it's that the Q came from the chant right it's a product of 4chan 8chan these really kind of weird and, and, and off-putting spots. But it, the reality is that the internet itself is kind of, has always created conspiracy theories and grifts and, and all sorts of kind of negative things. And, and Mike very skillfully shows that, that it's not just, you know, Chan culture thrown, you know, upon the world, but really it is something deeper there. And then uh, something that a section of the book that I found myself kind of going through now, like a month after I finished it, is how to talk to people, you know, that are in the movement and how to talk to them, how to bring them out, how to kind of get them out of that cult mindset. I thought that was a particularly well-written and strong part of the book. And I think it's probably one of the few the authors and journalists covering Q that has really talked about that at length, which is, which is awesome. So with all that being said, let's get the interview started. Please welcome my guest, uh, Mike Rothschild. How's it going? It's going well. And thank you for that, for that introduction, for that, for that lavish praise. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> welcome. So I want to start off with kind of like, you're a journalist. Tell us a little about your background and how how you came to covering conspiracy theories in general and then Q specifically. What was what was a, the animating principle there? What was kind of your curiosity? Sure. I don't have a journalism sort of educational background. Like I didn't go to journalism school. I never did an internship at a newspaper. I, I kind of stumbled into this. But I've always been really interested in conspiracy theories, not uh, not because I believe them, but I I sort of appreciated them as storytelling. You, you had a kind of a clear arc of what was supposed to be happening and how we were supposed to react to it. And it involved elements that were really outside of what I grew up with. You know, I, I was sort of on the cutting edge of, of really public and common embracing of the internet. So the idea of like being able to go online and like find a YouTube video as an eight-year-old, like that didn't exist for me as a kid. So I really had to to find my own way in it, and, and I really found my way into into conspiracy theories through Art Bell, through the Coast to Coast AM radio show, and I would listen to that a lot in college. And it was always just so interesting to me the way these things were laid out and the topics that people were very earnestly talking about. You had people really who really believed that they'd been kidnapped by a UFO or that their farm had been turned into a crop circle. Or that they were in a living in a simulation, you know, you know, right around the time the Matrix came out, so that was big. It it, it always fascinated me 
because people truly believed that this was real. That this was not like, you know, here's a here's just a fish story that I'm telling you. This these things happened to these people in a way that they truly thought was real, and I I that really stuck with me for a long time. And after a while of doing a bunch of other writing, I started writing for the blog of the critical thinking podcast, Skeptoid. And so once a week, I would just write about something weird. I would write about pseudoscience or an urban legend or a conspiracy theory. And it started to really take off. And when I, I realized that I could maybe possibly make a career out of doing this was I think in maybe early 2014, I'd written a, a blog post about the oil pulling phenomenon, and this was a, a pseudoscience. I think it's still around. I don't think people do it as much, but you could take a type of oil, uh, olive oil, coconut oil, uh, palm oil. It didn't really matter because it's pseudoscience, and of course it doesn't matter, and you swish it around in your mouth for an undetermined period of time because, again, time periods don't matter because this is pseudoscience, and you spit it out, and it extracts all of the toxins from your body and cures all of the diseases that you have. Anything from asthma to diabetes to eczema to cancer. And, you know, obviously these are sending up all of the, you know, pseudoscience alarm bells. But I looked at the metrics on the post one day and it had gotten something like 150,000 views, which is a lot. It, especially for me, you know, I, I wasn't coming at this from any sort of major journalism background. Like I was happy when anybody read anything I did. So for 150,000 people to read something, I was like, oh my God, what, what happened here? As it turned out, Dr. Oz had done a segment on the benefits of oil pulling. And I thought to myself, there are people who saw that and were looking for more information. And what they found was something debunking it. And, and I thought, you know, maybe I really made a difference to somebody. And from there, I really started to focus on this as an actual career. I wrote for a couple of different websites. A publisher approached me about doing what would be my first book, which was sort of a coffee table book about conspiracy theories. That led me to getting a book agent. And around that time, I was really getting interested in QAnon because I was starting to see its similarities to some of the prosperity scams and frauds that I write about in the book. So I, I sort of put it all together and I put a book pitch together to do a book about QAnon because I could tell this is going to be a really big problem for a long time. And it took like a year to get anybody interested in it. But finally, um, my publisher, Melville Hulse, got really interested and, and there you go. So what started off as me just kind of idly listening to Art Bell has sort of turned into a career. And I, I couldn't have planned this. I don't think you could repeat it right now. Uh, it's just a bunch of things happening at the same time. That's really interesting. So uh, a couple of like things, like when you sit down to report on a conspiracy theory, whether it's QAnon, you know, the some of the prosperity scams, when you report on it, is there like a tension between reporting and kind of reproducing this worldview of this conspiracy theory versus debunking? You know, so yeah. sort of like, faithfully reporting versus, you know, this is bullshit, like, here's why. Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that I'm constantly uh, checking myself on, whether it's, you know, book stuff or interviews or, or journalism or whatever, is not platforming these ideas without pushback, you know, not giving these people basically free publicity. And at the same time, understanding that just ignoring things and hoping that they go away does not work anymore. Uh, maybe it used to when conspiracy theories were nowhere near as accessible or mainstream, but just ignoring something like Pizzagate or just ignoring something like stolen election conspiracy theories, that doesn't work because the people who believe them still believe them. And if you ignore it, if journalists and, and skeptics and fact checkers ignore these things, they just spread without any pushback. So it's very important to me to address these things, but not to give the people who are creating them free airtime. And I think some, you know, not so great conspiracy journalism will do that. We'll just sort of let these people kind of spout off or at, or at best sort of make fun of these things that they're spouting off. Well, you're still platforming these people. You just think you're getting some easy points off of them. So when it comes to like, preserving facts and like creating a timeline about what you're reporting on 
how does that work with the online? Because like, when I think of Q, I don't necessarily associate permanence with, with posts, with, with actors, with threads, or a thread could be kind of permanent, but buried under so much stuff. And, you know, HN isn't necessarily well indexed. You can't just, you know, run a search or, you know, create a simple query. But when it comes to like kind of reporting on, on online stuff, like, you know, how do you, do you, let me ask this, do you find like preservation and sort of like basic, like just preserving data, a challenge? And like, how did you approach that challenge? Oh, and yeah, that's a huge challenge. One of the things I do on Twitter a lot is I will screen grab things that the big Q promoters are saying, or, you know, things that are going around in conspiracy theory circles. And for my purposes, that's not to, you know, I certainly don't want to platform these things, but what I'm doing is I'm kind of creating the historical record as I go. Like, I I don't necessarily want to have like a giant file of screenshots somewhere that, that to me sounds like maybe not more trouble than it's worth, but it just, I don't know. I don't want to collect history that obsessively, but what you're doing is you are preserving these things because these things do get pulled down. You know, we, we've seen certainly with Donald Trump's Twitter account, you know, Never mind that he was using it to spread conspiracy theories, disinformation, and and you know some just horrible stuff. This was a historical record. You know, to 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 delete that, I think, is is robbing researchers of a vital archive. And in, and in Trump's case, that stuff is all preserved. There is a literally a Trump Twitter archive that I went back to quite a bit at the end stages of working on the book because right in the middle of working on the book, you know, Trump got banned from Twitter. But no, there are a lot of instances where I would cite something and then three months later, my editor would come back and go, uh, yeah, that link is dead. So I would have to go find it through uh, the Internet Archive or find another source for it. You know, I knew I knew what I was trying to say, but I needed a way to back it up. So the Internet Archive was a huge help for me. Other people are really good at, at capturing a lot of the minutia of QAnon. There is actually an HN search engine that I found that is miraculously still up that I was able to use to search for certain terms. But you have to find these things. You know, there's not a there's not like a handbook for where this stuff is. So you really do need to find some way to preserve the the evidence that you find or find something that is said in a couple of different places that you can find an alternate version of. So when it comes to like crafting a history of online movements, like how do you, how do you sit there and say, this is bullshit, this is not going to be included in the history. And then this set of data is going to be included. Like what is, what is your decision-making process? Because I started watching Q into the storm Mm -hmm. and it, it never had dawned on me the sheer volume of posts being produced, posts being mediated, then elevated, and then kind of the utter chaos of just, you know, what is typically online. But as a journalist, as a historian, like, how do you sort of say, this data is bullshit, it doesn't go into the book, this data is kind of more important? Like, what is the filtering and sort of examination uh, process there? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. It's it's very much, you know, it, it feels weird to be like, oh, you know, I'm working in data and, and evidence and fact checking, but I'm also going with my gut like that. That sounds counterintuitive, but you have to you have to have an instinct for what matters and what doesn't and what is going to communicate your thesis and what is going to overcomplicate your thesis. And I, I think one of the things that I really wanted to do and I worked with my editor on quite a bit was really not getting bogged down in details. You know, when you're talking about something like HN, I, I don't want to be getting into the the really high level stuff of cryptography and, you know, salted hashes and PGP keys. I mean, that's, that is stuff that 99.5% of the book's readers are not going to have any understanding of and, and don't care about, not because they're, you know, dumb or not, don't want to know, but it's just it's too esoteric. It's just too detailed. You know, most of the people who are going to read this book have never been to HN, don't know what an image board is, may, probably don't know anything about QAnon. So for, for me, the decision-making process is, does this simplify or does this overcomplicate? 
And one of the nice things about following a movement like this for a long time is that you get a sense of what matters and what doesn't. You know, there is there are millions and millions of A-chan posts, but most of the things that are said in those posts are just garbage. So the things that really do matter and the conspiracy theories and the hoaxes that start there, they do sort of blow up a disinformation pyramid. So at the very bottom, you've got HN, you've got Reddit, you've got Telegram channels. Above that, you've got semi-legitimate right-wing blogs and kind of right-wing Twitter influencers who maybe have small but vocal followings. Above that, you've got some of the bigger blogs and bigger influencers. Above that, you've got sort of dodgy places like Before It's News and Gateway Pundit and, and stuff like that. So the more you see something kind of going up the pyramid, and then, it, you know, eventually it lands with Fox News, and then it would land with Donald Trump. And, and so when you get something that you can see moving up the pyramid, you know that it's legitimate. You know that there is a need to talk about it and a need to explore it and to fact check it. But, you know, if you're, if you're trying to write a book and you're trying to knock down every single 4chan post, you'll, you will never finish and you will stop because it's frustrating and pointless. So you really have to know what matters, what doesn't, what is going to help versus what is going to confuse. And even then, it's just trial and error. And there are a lot of references and details that I ended up cutting out of the book because it was just too much. And I thought it was important, but at the same time, for a non-Q understander, it's just more noise that that really obscures the central thesis that you're getting to. Awesome. So let's get into it. Like, what is QAnon? What do we consider it core tenets and, and beliefs? If, if we, there are even core tenets and beliefs. Sure. And, and there are. And it's really important for people to understand that Q is very complicated. It, it, and it's as complicated as you want it to be. I mean, you can really go down any number of tangents and rabbit holes and get lost in, in all kinds of weird crap. But at its very core, QAnon is a movement that makes people feel special. And it's a movement that makes them feel like they know what's going on. And the thing that they know what's going on is that a military intelligence team calling itself Q and working directly with Donald Trump was using uh, 4chan and then 8chan to leak cryptic clues to the upcoming purge of the deep state in the final act of a secret and silent war between the black hats and the white hats. So there are a million different other places that you can go to and dozens and dozens of people that you can talk about is maybe being linked to this, maybe not being linked to this, but at its core, QAnon is a, is a silent war. And Q gives the white hats, the good guys, the patriots, the, you know, the freedom-loving Christians of America, a, a way to be part of that war. You, you're fighting back against the black hats. And that's the thing that makes QAnon so different from other string-pulling cabal conspiracy theories. You know, when you're reading about the Illuminati or the New World Order or Bohemian Grove or the Bilderberg Group or whatever, you're reading about a shadowy, ultra-powerful, ultra-wealthy group who can do anything it wants to you. You can't do anything about them. You will never, ever be in the same rarefied air as them. All you can do is just understand that a boot is about to come down on you. Well, QAnon is different in that it gives you a way to push back against the boot that is stepping on you. It lets you make memes and make videos and decode the drops and debate what the decodes really mean and, and send those things out to your friends and wake people up so that they know what's happening and so they can join you. It gives you a feeling of specialness and being part of something bigger than your own life. That's the most important thing to understand about you. Like the, the arcana of the drops and, and all of that other stuff is, is also important. But to me, the, the central tenant of QAnon is you are a digital soldier fighting back against evil. And that can manifest in an infinite number of ways. That can manifest in, I won't take your vaccine. That can manifest in, I won't wear your mask. It can manifest in, Joe Biden's not the real president. And in ways that we haven't even thought of yet. So QAnon, the, the mythology of QAnon is infinitely sustainable, even if the actual sort of technical term of what QAnon has been over the last few years 
really is starting to fade away. That's interesting because it almost seems like it's one of the few conspiracies that kind of push people to have agency or empowers them to have agency as opposed to, oh, I'm a victim, you know, might as well, this is how the world is, whatever. I mean, it, like, it almost seems like it's pushing people to act and to, yes. to kind of engage their agency in the yes. world. Yes, it, it, it gives you agency. That's a great way to put it. It, it. it makes you feel like you can win, like, like the battle isn't over. And that's really compelling to people. And it's, it's a world that you want to stay in. It's not about brainwashing. It's not about mind control. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not coercive like that. You, you want to be part of this. You want to talk to other Q believers. You want to cut non-believers out of your life because they're, they're the bad guys. You, you want to do these things that bring you closer and closer to the people who are on the same team as you. It's, it's like team sports. It's community. It's the very basic aspects of human nature that have really kind of faded away over the last few decades, and especially now over the last year and a half with COVID. That's, that's kind of interesting because it, it, it really does remind me of a, of a cult. And I think like in, pop, in the popular understanding of Q is that QAnon is a cult. But, you know, in our study of cults on the show, it, it seems like the purpose or the end goal of a cult is to limit the agency of the individual. Your whole life is about, you know, Scientology or the MEK or whatever. But here, Q is kind of, saying like your agency as an individual should be expansive. You should go out and be a digital soldier. So like, is Q a cult in that regard? Or do you feel like that we can't really put Q into that bucket of, oh, it's a cult or it's a sort of brainwashing organization? Yeah, that was one of the biggest reasons I wanted to write the book was to answer that question of is Q a cult? And I talked to a number of cult experts who really all kind of said the same thing of, it feels like a cult, but there are also ways that it's not. And of course, that's not really a simple answer. People want to know, is it a cult or not? And my answer is kind of, it, it is very cultic in the in-group versus the out-group. You, you know, in the, in the in-group, it's safe and warm and everybody is your friend and we're doing this together. We have our special lingo. We have our jargon. We have our t-shirts that we wear. You, you know, when I say where we go one, you say we go all. That's very cultic. But that's, that can apply to a lot of things. That can apply to team sports. That can apply to trade organizations. You know, that can apply to role-playing games or video games. And of course, there are oh, people who think that QAnon is just a one big alternate reality game, which is not quite a hypothesis that I'm 100% on board with, but I understand why people say it. On the other hand, Q does not have a charismatic leader whose you know, iron will controls the organization. It, it really does think that it is teaching you to think for yourself. You know, the, the closest thing to a leader in Q is the Q poster. And they really never did the, the sort of love and terror thing that we see in a lot of other cults. You know, there was love, there was the singling out of Q believers for praise. And there was sometimes the, that fury was directed to people on the outside, but really never on the inside. So, you know, you have a group that doesn't really have a leader and that doesn't really coerce people into staying in it. People want to stay in it. So it's kind of a cult. It's kind of not a cult. I don't even know that that's really the most useful term to talk about QAnon, especially now, because the mythology and the branding have really been discarded in favor of, you know, Q mythology just becoming almost mainstream in conservatism now. So how do you separate out Q from its online beginnings and origins because it just seems like you know reading through your book and kind of listening and watching to the q documentary into the storm it just it just seemed like it was just so online so like you know watching people kind of go through the threads and, and engage each other it just reminded me a lot of like reddit of tumblr like i couldn't i kind of struggled to find any real world 
like parallel. Like, like I couldn't think of a, a movement, a cult, or anything that was as online and as kind of internet-based as Q. So like when we talk about beliefs and tenants, like how do we kind of separate out the online from Q? Or is it even like, it's not even possible to do that? Yeah, I don't know that it's really possible to separate Q from from the internet. I, I mean, I don't know if you would have had Q take off as as fast and as all-encompassing as it did without social media in particular. You know, certainly there are precursors to, to Q that did much of the same thing that Q did. You know, I, I write about this stuff a lot in the book, these things like Nasara and the Iraqi Dinar scam, where you had a, a central figure who presented himself as, a, as an all-knowing guru about this very niche subject. And they were dispensing these very cryptic Intel updates about a great world-changing event that was about to come. You know, Nasara is very much like that. I write about this a lot in the book. Like the, the jargon is really very similar. The kind of the secret war between good and evil, that's very similar. But what was different with those is that those were financial. Those were, you put your money in and you will get much more money out. Q was very different because it didn't, it didn't involve any kind of uh, financial investment. What it was was, you will have the good feelings of watching Hillary Clinton be hanged at Guantanamo Bay. Well, that's a whole different kind of thing. And it's something that is very appealing, especially to people who've spent the last 30 years baked in conspiracy theories, many of which took off on the nascent internet, that Hillary Clinton was the most evil person in American history, and she's eventually going to get what's coming to her. The very first Q drop is, Hillary's going to get what's coming to her. That was really skillfully done. You know, there are people who look at Q as like, oh, it's just a lucky troll. I don't think it was lucky at all. I think it was very well crafted in the very beginning, done in a place where people were used to that kind of storytelling on 4chan, where you had different Anon accounts, you know, FBI Anon, and Highway Patrolman, and all these other ones who pretended to be some kind of highly placed figure but they never quite told the story in a, in a compelling way for people to really grab onto and kind of make it their own thing. The, the communication was always very one way with those. With Q, it's very give and take. And I don't think you would ever be able to get that without the internet. That's interesting. So is, is it fair to say like that Q, its success is largely based on its ability to create a narrative and create a story that if we kind of compare Q to the Iraqi dinar, or not Iraqi, excuse me, Kuwaiti dinar, kind of the, that conspiracy and the Nasara, mm-hmm. like the difference between all three of those is that Q is very skillful, at, at least initially, very skillful at creating a narrative, you know, telling a story and then finding its audience. Yeah, I think... What Q did really differentiated itself from all of the past affinity frauds and all of the sort of current 4chan LARPers, the live action role players who were pretending to be White House insiders or Clinton campaign insiders. Q's story, especially in those first 150 or so drops, was really well done. And it was really built around an event happened in early November which would involve mass numbers of Marines and National Guard being deployed to put down riots. Well, there was the whole conspiracy theory about the uh, big Antifa uprising that was supposed to happen November 4th, 2017. And now I don't know if the Q poster believed that that was real or just said, hey, I'm going to piggyback off of this. But it's, it's, a, it's a story that is really well told. And it's a story that really understands conspiracy theory culture but also American evangelical culture understands the role of Hillary Clinton in the far-right conspiracy theory mongering, and also understands how to parse out information. You know, there wasn't just one giant dump of stuff that's going to happen. Like it's really, it's teased out over, over a couple of weeks, and it keeps you hanging on for the, the next drop and the next drop. You, you, you want to know what's going to happen. Now, that, obviously, that whole story fizzled out because there's no Antifa uprising. There's no Marines and National Guard deployed. Hillary's not arrested. There's no storm. None of that happens. And then the Q poster says, I've built up a following. 
I'm going to keep going with this. And so that's really when you get the jump into the, the constant kicking of the can down the road and the, you know, the, pro, you know, the prophecies that never come true and Q's writing style really changes at that point. It becomes much more rhetorical and much less predictive. And, and you know, really nothing that happened in Q quite recaptures the magic of those first 150 or so posts. But for a little while, it's a really, really compelling techno thriller. Like if you kind of cleaned this up and made it into a little bit more of a narrative, this could be a Tom Clancy book. That's interesting, Tom Clancy book. But like, even with like, like if we consider it like in its, in the extreme or in its most kind of cleaned up a Tom Clancy book or you know, every story kind of has to find its audience or has to, you know, have a, a receptive audience. And, you know, by the time Q comes around, it's 2017, if, if, if I understand the timeline, right? Yeah. And yes. you have Tumblr, Reddit, you have Twitter, Facebook, and yet the original Q or the first poster or whatever, however you want to refer to it, chose kind of 4chan. Is that... What does that tell you about, you know, about whoever started it and and sort of their choice of audience? Yeah, I think it it reveals that the person doing it understood the way 4chan discourse works and understood that you have, especially in the the poll board where uh, Q started, you have an audience of people who are really up for believing almost anything. And of course, there's no moderation. You know, you 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 can talk about anything on a chan board pretty much, and nobody cares. So you can you can tell this story in any manner you see fit, and you know that if you do it sort of if you do enough posts and you keep the thread going, people are going to get more and more excited about it. And you can tell that you can see with the very first couple of Q drops, people just no one cares. Like this isn't getting through to anybody. But, but the Q poster sticks with it. They keep telling the story. And through sort of dogged determination and getting a few very small-time right-wing influencers on board with them, they were able to push it out very quickly to a much bigger audience. And it's, it's a much bigger audience than any of these other previous uh, LARP accounts had ever gotten. And I really do think it was, it was built around the idea that it was going to be Hillary who was going down. I think whoever made those posts really understood the critical role that she plays in American conspiracy culture. That's really interesting. Like they, they chose poll and then it really takes off and kind of gets taken up by the right wing or not, I shouldn't say right wing, by kind of conservatives and Republicans. And so you know, do we see kind of Q being taken up by the left or is it simply, you know, it got seated with that audience at first and then that's where it's growing. You know, it's going to be, you know, part and parcel of the right. Yeah, I think by its nature, it was always going to be primarily adapted by the right. I mean, certainly at first, you know, now with the pandemic, it's like a free fall. But certainly at the beginning, like you don't have a lot of liberals going on 4chan. It, it's a pretty far right pro-Trump leaning place. So, you know, whoever was doing this really understood who, who exactly their audience was and how their audience communicates. And I don't think somebody brand new to 4chan is going to understand. So, you know, based on the hypothesis that most people have, that it was probably one of these early evangelists who who made these first posts you know the the guy that keeps coming up is Paul Ferber you know he's he's interviewed in Q into the storm he's one of the guys that goes on infowars in December of 2017 it's his board on 8chan where Q started posting when made, Q made the jump from 4chan to 8chan so it it makes a lot of sense for it to be him of course he's not american south african but you know there are a lot of cultural overlaps there and especially because he was a really kind of hardcore 4chan guy there's it it makes a lot of sense for it to be him but we don't know because the poster didn't leave any way to identify themselves there's no signature there's no trip code there's no identification there of any kind so a lot of different people claim that they have made those first posts or that they came up with the idea or that they were there when it started but the the evidence that they present 
lacks an identifier. There's, you can't tie it to those posts. So I tend to not disc, I, I tend to discount pretty much all of it and just go with the content of the posts themselves as being really tailored for that audience. So then there's a break where Fortune kicks Q off, right? If I, if I understand that correctly, and then it kind of moves to 8chan. So the first question I have is, what kind of precipitated that split? What, what kind of made the 4chan admin say, can't have this anymore, you know, go to 8chan, go somewhere else, can't be on here? You know, we still don't know with, with any kind of real certainty why Q jumped from 4chan to 8chan. I mean, people have their theories, but, you know, there really isn't any reason. I mean, it's not like uh, 4chan had, you know, any kind of moderation that would disallow these kind of posts. I mean, there's nothing Q was posting that was against 4chan's rules such as they are. You know, it's, it's a decent theory that Ron Watkins, who, you know, who ran HN, saw the popularity of this and reached out to Ferber and after seeing him on InfoWars and said, hey, you want to take this over here? But we don't know. I mean, that's, that is a completely plausible theory. It could absolutely be something else. I don't really know. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where I think a lot of disinformation researchers really believe that the actual identity of the person who is typing the posts in and hitting post is not quite as important as the text itself and the, the impact of the text on the people who believed it. So then something that I kind of found interesting and it was kind of, kind of blew my mind is that a lot of Q believers or people who engage in, in that content aren't actually going to HN. They're going to kind of aggregators and mediators. Uh, I think the first one that comes you know, on the top of my head is qmac.pub. So when they switch over to HN, you know, I guess like, what is the role of, me- of aggregators and mediators here? Like with qmac.pub, there's a whole bunch of other ones that I can't, kind of escaping me yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of them. A lot of them are gone now. Like QMAP.pub is actually gone now too, thankfully. But yeah, one of the interesting things about Q is that the place where the doctrine is disseminated is not actually the place where the doctrine is analyzed. Now you had, of course, very long threads on HN in the Q research board dissecting all of this stuff. But a lot of the content there is just garbage. It's memes. It's like you know, racist jokes, it's neo-Nazi stuff. I mean, it's, it's not really palatable. And I think what the people, you know, who, who, who were really starting to get into this as, as the promoters and the gurus were realizing is that they needed somewhere else to do this because they didn't want the boomers who were getting involved in QAnon to go to HN and go like, oh my God, this is, this is awful. I don't, I, I'm not an anti-Semite. I don't, I don't like these memes. I don't want anything to do with this. These people are terrible. So what you would do is you would post the drops. You let the HN chuds pick over them, but then they would also get picked up by these other aggregator sites. And so then you could link to those on places like Twitter or Reddit and provide a much safer, uh, much more focused way to interpret and dissect and talk about the drops than you would find on HN because HN is just, anarchy. But if you post it other places, and then, you know, long Twitter threads link to those places, suddenly you've got a, a much safer way to talk about this stuff. And in a way of saying, well, I didn't know there was racist content. I didn't, I don't know what an HN is. I just, I just believe that this is all real. So it's almost giving yourself a, a kind of a layer of plausible deniability. I mean, in your view, did that did that layer of abstraction, the reliance on aggregators kind of normalize Q or like, like imagine if you had taken away those aggregators and then people in order to kind of engage with Q's content would have to go to HN. Are the aggregators in, in some way kind of responsible or partly responsible for popularizing and kind of mainstreaming Q more? Definitely. I, I really think that those drop aggregator sites played a very underexamined role in the longevity of QAnon. Because I think if it had just been 4chan and 8chan, I, I think it would have run out of gas. There would have been 
too many barriers for outsiders to, to get into it. You would have had to do a lot of explaining of like, well, you know, Q is, is nonviolent and Q is not anti-Semitic and Q believes patriots have no skin color. So just ignore all of the racism and anti-Semitism and violent ideation. You know, that, that's hard to do. You know, most people are not quite capable of that level of cognitive dissonance. But if you, if you put a, a layer of separation there, you know, for people who are already maybe not quite so digitally literate, that's a way to perpetuate something and give it the uh, illusion of being much safer than it actually is. So you've kind of critiqued or you've taken sort of, let's just say critique of people sort of saying that Q is a, just a huge interactive game, that it's, yeah. you know, kind of augmented reality game, I think is, you know, the the phrasing. But yeah. walk us through why... Like it really, it kind of seems like a game from the outside, but you've kind of walk us through your critique of it. Yeah, I, I think it's very natural to look at something like QAnon and, and assume that it that it works like a game. And I think a lot of people who are in that sphere have labeled it that. But I think there are a number of ways that it's it's not. I mean, games have an end. A, a game has an objective. You know, whether it's a role playing game or whether it's a poker game. I mean, you're your, your objective is to win. And then there are certain ways that you do that. You know, you win all of the money, you win the championship at the end, you beat all of your other, you know, all the other enemies in the game. Games have a natural endpoint. Hugh does not. Hugh just keeps going and going and going and going. So if you want to look at Q as, as kind of a game of chance, what I look at it as is a slot machine. It will continue to give you buzzers and sounds and lights and images and things that keep you hooked, things that, you know, activate those parts of your brain that, that really like light noise and action. And all you have to do is just keep feeding into it. And what you're feeding into Q, the slot machine, is your time and your attention. It's not your money, although it can be your money. What it is, is it, it, you're feeding your personal space into it. You're, you're letting Q take over more and more of your life. So you're giving it more and more of your time. But I think the idea that it's, that it's a game re- really kind of underestimates how people feel about Q. The people who are in Q think that they're saving the world. They think that they are defeating a 5,000-year-old Babylonian death cult. They're not trying to get a trophy. They're not, you know, killing a few hours on a Saturday night. This is life and death for these people. You know, whether or not it, it's structured as a game, it is deadly serious to the people who believe it. So I, I think calling it a, a game, I know people are like, oh, it's a game that went wrong. I, I, don't, I don't think it's that. I think it's much more than that. I, I think that it is, it, is, it is the world. It is the way these people exist now. And I think just calling it a game, I think kind of undersells it a little. It's kind of interesting because it almost seems like you're describing it or your description of it can be taken as either, you know, a cult, a movement, or even a religion, right? And it, it yeah. just, you know, you know, when we when we kind of conceptualize it as as those things, you know, A, you know, which one is it? <laughs> right. And B, like how adaptable is it, you know, how, you know. I can't think of a, a prophecy that Q has said or a sort of prediction that has actually come true. Or if it's come true, then there's a lot of like caveats. So walk us through like, what is, what is like Q? Is it a movement, a cult? And then how adaptable is it going forward with all this kind of large record of failure, of a prophetic yeah. failure? Yeah, it's, it's all of those things. And it's none of them, which of course is extremely frustrating. Because we want to be able to pin it down as one thing and think we understand it. That's what I wanted. But it, it has tenets, you know, as we talked about, of a cult, but also not. It has tenets of a mass movement, but it's not quite that either. It has tenets of a religion, but it doesn't really have the kind of organizational structure of a religion. Although it has kind of the scripture, the scripture doesn't really offer you kind of parables for daily life. It offers you... Uh, punishment for your enemies that never actually comes. 
But what happens is that people become so wrapped up in the community of QAnon that the, the completely failed track record of predictions is beside the point. You know, you, you trust that it's going to happen at some point. You know, the, the bad people are going to get arrested. Hillary's going to get what's coming to her. George Soros is going to get strung up at Guantanamo Bay. Well, maybe it won't happen today or tomorrow or next week. But hey, we've been fighting these, these evildoers for thousands of years. And what's a couple more days? And so you always give yourself an out. You always give yourself a reason why it didn't happen. And the, the failure is simply a precursor to later success. And when you have something that works on that level, it becomes almost impossible to extricate somebody from it because they're just, they're still hanging on. They've spent this much time, this much money, this much effort. What's another day? What's another week? You, you find yourself in just an endless feedback loop and, and nothing, nothing gets through there. And we, we've seen how adaptable QAnon is. It's so adaptable that it doesn't even really go by that name anymore. One of the remarks I get from Q believers online all the time is, you know, there is no QAnon. There is Q and there are Anons, but there is no QAnon. That's based on one of the last Q drops. Well, never mind that that's ridiculous because the term QAnon shows up on 4chan like a week after the first drops and it's used freely by everybody in that community until it's not. But what happens is that the, the really lurid parts of QAnon, the, the sex trafficking, the adrenochrome, the satanic rituals, that stuff gets sanded down in favor of a much more mainstream kind of vague dread about the world. So you, you have a movement of people who now really do believe that COVID is a hoax, that Joe Biden is a fake president, that vaccines are poisonous, that Trump is controlling all of this, that the all-powerful deep state is on the verge of collapse. Some of these things come from Q-drops. Some of them are just based around the thought process of a conspiracy theorist. But you can take this in an infinite number of directions for an infinite amount of time and really never use the term QAnon again. It's just the same conspiracy theorizing that humans are all prone to just in a very focused way. And that makes it virtually impossible to stop. That's kind of frightening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very frightening. Because it almost it almost points to not only are they are believers very adaptable, but it almost seems, you know, there's a sort of narrative there that other actors can reach into and kind of take parts of Q and kind of, you know, shape it and you know, add to their own kind of philosophies like I think yeah. you know in a week or so we're going to have uh, a conversation about the Christian identity movement and it was it was kind of wild to me that this kind of white supremacist movement is kind of borrowing language from Q and kind of using it to recruit and saying yeah. like so like in that sense like how connected or do you see any connections between Q and sort of other fringe movements and other fringe groups yeah, you really do now. You know, the, the pandemic really was the great leveler of, of extremist movements. You know, for a long time, the, the really hardcore militia people and the really violent Christian identity people, they didn't want anything to do with Q. They thought it was just a bunch of boomers on their couch who didn't have the courage to, you know, grab their guns and do it themselves. But with the pandemic, everything is now just the same thing. So you, you have like 3% or militia guys who are also anti-vax, who also think that Hillary Clinton is a sex trafficker, who also think that vaccines have microchips in them. It's, it's all of these different conspiracy theory and extremist worlds that for a long time were, were really very, very separate. And some of these were really much more the province of progressives. Excuse me. A lot of these were the province of progressives. But because the pandemic put everybody inside and everybody was looking for answers and finding them in the same place, Facebook groups and social media in general, everything started to merge together. And now there, there is no real difference. You're going to be an anti-vaxxer and you're also going to be a stolen election truther. And you're also going to be a George Soros conspiracy theorist. And you're also going to think that 5G is scrambling your brain. You know, everything is now the same thing. So the distinctions, at least to me, are, are, 
are really falling away. And what we're just basically seeing is a gigantic octopus of conspiracy theory that has its tentacles and everything. That's, that's why. I kind of want to switch footing to something that you highlighted in your book that I think is really important, which is when a believer wants to leave the movement. And you highlight the story of, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Jatarth. Jatarth, yeah. And when I read that part of the book, it was it was hard to read. And not hard to read because, you know, it's poorly written or anything. <laughs> it, it was hard to read because I felt, I like genuinely felt for the guy. He didn't seem like like he was a ter- like a like an extremist in 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 the way that I conceive of it, but he was just a guy, right? He has, you know, he goes online and then suddenly finds himself pulled in. Can you quickly just tell us his story because it was it was just so touching and so like like it was kind of heartbreaking to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very heartbreaking story that ends in a very uplifting way, which of course most of these stories don't. Jatarth is a guy who lives in Australia and is of uh, Indian descent. I think his parents emigrated to Australia. And he's very progressive, uh, very liberal, you know, not a, not a MAGA guy, not, nothing like that. He said, you know, he told me that if he'd lived in the U.S., he probably would have voted for Bernie Sanders, like progressive guy. But he was also dealing with a bunch of setbacks. He'd uh, flunked out of the university a couple of times. He'd just gotten diagnosed with ADHD. And he was kind of really reeling from all of that. And at the same time, he was seeing Donald Trump kind of rise up and and asking himself, like, maybe this guy's got a point. Like, maybe maybe there's a reason why, you know, people are taking him seriously. Like, maybe maybe I need to look into this more. And he starts going deeper and deeper down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole, and he finds QAnon. And with QAnon, he finds a community where his academic problems and his, his questioning and his ADHD, these are not hindrances, these are advantages. He has just skills. He can, he can interpret data in a, in a very specific kind of way. That term weaponized autism is all over 4chan. There's a reason why you see it so much in QAnon. It's taking people who society has deemed to be you know, misfits or, or less than perfect and giving them a way to, to say, I'm going to show you, I'm, I'm going to push back against your establishment. And so for him, QAnon wasn't about like Trump becoming a God emperor. It was becoming, it was about giving his very unique life story, a direction to go in. And he said he just became completely engulfed in research and reading and watching videos. You know, he couldn't really talk about it with his his close friends and family, but then he, t- he turned his dad on to it. His dad was already kind of a conspiracy theory guy. And so they, they did this together. And he was really deep into this for about two years. And it really, really messed his life up. It really isolated him from people and really kind of stunted his career. And when he finally decided that it wasn't for him anymore, was the, I, I, you know, I write about this in the book, is the the tip top thing. So uh, somebody on uh, 4chan, or maybe it was 8chan at that point, asked Q to tell Trump to insert the phrase tippy top into the State of the Union address. Now, of course, Trump doesn't do that. And it, you know, that doesn't happen. But then three months later, Trump is at the White House Easter egg roll, and he refers to the White House as being in tip top shape. And Q people went crazy for it. They said, oh, he's acknowledged us. He's he did what we asked him to do. Now, never mind that he didn't, but they they took they, these people take any sign of affirmation as a sign that they are correct. And but with Jatarth, Jatarth started to realize maybe he didn't actually do what we asked him to do. And so he started looking and he found a bunch of other areas where a bunch of other times that Trump had used the phrase tippy top. He used it in the campaign a bunch. He used it a bunch of other times. This is just one of those Trump phrases that he was going to say at some point. And that was kind of the, the light bulb going off for Jatarth of saying, maybe Q doesn't really know what they're talking about. And once you start to realize that, it all falls apart for you. Every, everything just turns to dust. And that's really what happened with him. This, this consumed his life for a couple of years. He found just a tiny little bit of sunlight and he went toward it. And he, he got himself out. He made amends with the people that he alienated, although not really his father, because his father is still involved in QAnon. But he, he really, he did the work of 
apologizing for the harm that he'd done. And now he's a very, very out there apostate, you know, very out there ex-Cube believer. And there's really not very many. You know, he's gone on CNN and he, he's in my book and he was interviewed by a bunch of other places. It took me weeks to schedule an interview with him because he was so busy. But he, he really is the symbol of people who are able to get out of Q and show, I am a, you know, I'm able to walk away from this on my own terms because I wanted to. It seems like, you know, as uplifting as that story is, it's not typical, right? No. So, like, like, how many people are leaving Q? Is there a mass exodus or is it, is it like a lot of people don't leave for whatever reason? Yeah, people don't leave. It, it, no matter how many times two predictions fizzled out, no matter how many times uh, Q predicted that Trump would win in a landslide and then he didn't, no matter how many times Q promoters promised that there were, the storm was just about to happen or Hillary was going to get it or Trump's going to get reinstated, none of that ever happened. But people don't leave it. And they don't leave it because they're brainwashed. They leave it because it's still useful for them. They leave it, you know, they don't leave it because the community is still there. They've alienated all the people in the real world, you know, the relatives and friends who do not want to talk about this crap. But the Q family, the MAGA family, the anti-vax family, that's still there. That family still loves them. So to leave Q behind, you have to leave those people behind too. And they don't want to do that. That's their real family. And when you're dealing with something that is not just, I'm going to stop believing that this anonymous message board troll is real. And what you're actually dealing with is leaving a community of like-minded believers. It's like telling somebody to stop going to their church. They're not going to do that unless something happens at the church that you know causes them to leave it, which does happen. But most of the time you say, hey, that church is bad. Don't go there anymore. You're going to say, screw you. I'm going twice. That's just the way, that's just the way we are. And unfortunately, uh, reality is not quite as inviting as the uh, fake reality of Q. Yeah. And when I read, like, I think it's Q casualties. Uh, yeah. I hope I'm, I'm documenting that correctly. Yeah. Q, uh, R slash Q and on casualties. It's just it's like utterly heartbreaking. It's oh, just it like, is. I can't, I don't even go there that much anymore because it's just like, it's so sad and there's so much need for people to understand what's going on and try to help their friends and their family members. And you, I mean, it's, it's impossible to do it as an outsider and it's impossible to do it at scale. Right. So like, these are like average people. These aren't like, you know, psychiatrists or psychologists or you know social workers these are just like average people kind of grappling with the cost that this movement has inflicted on their family so my question is like what kind of resources does an average person you know how does an average person even approach this like what what do they say to that uncle that is kind of you know the cue uncle so to speak what is you know how how does an average person approach that the, the first thing you have to do is make the decision whether you actually want to do it. And there's no requirement to, to do it. You don't have to try to rescue Q uncle. Q uncle probably doesn't want to be rescued. And all you're going to do is frustrate yourself and make you wish you hadn't wasted the time in the first place. And, and if they're not harming themselves, if they're not putting themselves at risk, if they're not putting somebody else at risk, if they're not openly talking about violence or you know, openly talking about, you know, something to do with accosting people for, you know, vaccines or masks or something, there may just not be a reason to do it. It may just be their thing and you don't like it, but they do and that's it. Now, if they do start to show some sign of maybe starting to come out of it, if they're, you know, if you're talking to them and they're starting to doubt it, if it's not working for them anymore, if something happens in their life to change their mind, you know, maybe they get, maybe they've been completely anti-vax and then they get COVID and they get really sick. You know, not that you want that to happen, but there are there are openings that can present themselves that you can begin to exploit, for lack of a better term, to talk about, hey, you know, this this isn't really real. You know, let's talk about what this means. Let's talk about the the harm that this has done. 
if they're receptive to having the conversation, you may be able to get somewhere. Now, one of the things that you really, really need to do is try to unplug that person. Try to get them away from the constant churn of conspiracy theory content that is 24-7 on social media and on cable news, quite frankly. You know, try to just get them away from it. Just, just you know, even if it's for a couple of hours, just to interrupt the circuit breaker just a little bit. That can kind of free you up to start clearing the fog and, and be able to think about these things in a little more of an objective way. And then you can work on it together. Now you have to understand what they believe. You have to really read up on it. It's not an opportunity for a debate or for a kind of a humiliating uh, you know, settling of all accounts. None of that's going to work. And it's probably just going to undo whatever good you, that you've done. But a, a real conversation about what this means and the damage that it's done and how you care about them, and they, they matter to you, and they matter more to you than the conspiracy theory does to them. Things like that are really affirming to people who are really just looking for community and affirmation and togetherness with a, a group of people who's just found it in the wrong place. It's amazing. So I kind of want to talk about kind of the last question before it's sort of the our our general question this all kind of culminates into one six right so like there's these smattering of terrorist events kidnappings but q comes into this national consciousness like this huge dramatic consciousness on one six i think the the q shaman kind of became a meme for a while but I mean, if this movement is kind of empowering people to have agency in the real world, and that agency is violent, what should we expect? Should we just assume violence and sort of awfulness? Like, what is what is that expectation? What is the the sort of end product of the Q of QAnon? Yeah, it, that's a great question, and I think it's a, it's really something we all need to be thinking about. I, I think most conspiracy theorists in general, and Q believers in particular, are not violent people. I I think that it is a small minority of people who really do feel like they want to go grab their guns or, you know, go to a school board meeting and scream at people or go, you know, to a grocery store and cough on people. Those, Those people tend to pop up on social media because they are kind of, you know, freaks at the circus. But I think most people are not violent or, you know, maybe they think Joe Biden is a fake president, but they're also kind of resigned to the fact that there's nothing they can do about it. What you are seeing more and more is outright violence. And, and certainly with January 6th, and I think with some of these, some of these school board protests and some of these other protests that have been going on, you're seeing a much more violent and much more organized element. And that's where I think QAnon is really merging with a lot of these other extremist groups, you know, Proud Boys and Three Percenters and all these other people. So I think the potential for mass violence here is enormous. And I think we're really, in a lot of ways, underestimating the damage that one or two Q believers could do if, if, they, if their world just collapsed and they felt like they had no other choice but to strike back and take matters into their own hands. So I think it's something that we really do have to be on the lookout for while also recognizing that most people who are into movements like this are not violent people. You just don't hear about it. That's interesting. So per our tradition on the Loopcast, we always, our last question on the show is asking our, you know, our guest to leave us with something to think about, something that uh, isn't really discussed, but you want us as, as the audience to be aware of and sort of think about when we leave the conversation. So give us something to think about. <laughs> wow, that's really, that, that's hard to do. I would say that, that the thing to think about is to, to maybe not think about QAnon by that name anymore and to really see its, its fingerprints on everything that is driving the national discourse right now. You know, this, this anti-vaccine movement is certainly not new. I mean, there have been anti-vaxxers for a long time, you know, centuries, in fact. And, and it's even been, you know, sort of organized and popular really in the last few decades. But it, it, never, it never merged with other conspiracy theory movements up until now. You know, you never, you know, you really never saw anti-vax people in the 90s also talking about, you know, Whitewater or the Clintons. Th- those two, those were separate worlds. 
And so I think the thing to think about is everything is now becoming one thing. And the way to tackle that is, is not to try to feel like you have to take it all down at once, is to really sort of bite off the parts of it that you can. You know, if you have the family member who's really struggling with the vaccine, whether to get it or not, talk to them about that. If you have the family member who is, you know, really obsessed with deep state sex trafficking, talk to them about that. You know, it may be turning into a conspiracy theory of everything, but you are only one person and you can't do everything. So do the thing that you're good at, the thing you understand. And, and I think maybe the other thing to think about is that this is all going local. You know, we're really seeing this exploding at the very bottom levels of politics. And I think we've been much too focused on national politics, on you know, the Supreme Court and the filibuster and the presidential election and all that stuff. And I think we don't quite know enough about our school boards and our town councils and who the mayor is and who's running for that office and what do they believe. So I think maybe the, the thing to think about is think very small. Think about the people in your life. Think about your community. Think about things that directly impact you and how you can impact those things. Powerful words. Thank you. So that was my guest, Mike Rothschild, the, the author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. Definitely go pick this up. It's, it's an excellent read. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you.